ACNFers, this episode is brought to you by the word obstreperous. Obstreperous. Noisy, clamorous, or boisterous. When the 3 a.m. voice comes to tell you what a lousy person you are, it sounds obstreperous. ACNF for the CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Wonderful. What can I say? Nicholas DeGuerra is here, and he's a heavy dude. Not in the sense that his BMI is dangerously obese. I don't think it is. Okay, can I pause and say BMI is bullshit? I may be built like SpongeBob, but I'm not obese. But BMI has fat-shamed me into body dysmorphia, and I don't know who to blame. Nick had a great piece of Flash, Flash, nonfiction uh, for shortreads.org, titled Happy Birthday. It is one sentence long. It is 857 words long. There are many commas. You will not lose your breath. Nick is not afraid to run toward the pain, and you feel the pain. His mission is to make you feel less alone. He laughs at the idea of calling whatever it is he does a career, so don't use that word. Great chat about MFA programs, the one-sentence essay, telling the truth, and running towards the hurt. You can learn more about Nick at www.nicholasdigierda.com. Digierda. D-I-G-H-I-E-R-A. As far as I can tell, he is not on social media. For that, I am jealous. And I am jealous of his beard. He has an epic beard. If you head over to brendanomero.com, hey, hey, you can read show notes to this episode and many others and sign up for my Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter, a curated list, so basic, uh, an essay, not so basic, books, stuff to make you happy. It goes up to 11, literally. The list is 11 items long. First of the month, no spam. Can't beat it. Oh, and I started something cool for the Patreon crew. Patreon.com slash CNFpod if you want to throw a few bucks into the hat. As you know, the show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. Any tier. I started like a, a thread. A simple one for starters. What are you working on? Encouraging the Patreon crew to talk amongst themselves. I, I I jump in just to keep the momentum going, but I don't feel like I need to be there. I just, I'm there to acknowledge, but I hope that the Patreon crew will talk amongst themselves. Uh, like make it a hub for people to meet they normally wouldn't meet and to maybe glean some insights from people they would not ordinarily glean insights from. There's no way to tag someone. But maybe you can write, I think you could just reply right below someone's comment and, uh, and they can have a conversation. Just thinking of other means to get your money's worth and feel less alone. I suppose there's a, I could create like a private Facebook group for it. Um, but I doubt, I mean, I'm only on Facebook to find people I need to talk to, like for book research and stuff. Like I'm not on there to socialize. Or uh, yeah, that. Uh, so so I I just uh, what I might be doing with the Patreon thing too. I might do a little video, and it'll just be like that'll be like the prompt to start the thread, and it it'll just be 
things that you can kind of chew on and be like, oh, cool. And you get, and there's 27 uh, Patreon folks of varying tiers. That's a nice little cohort. I mean, of course, we'd love to see that be 2,700. Wouldn't that be cool? Uh, then I, then I, could, uh, I could retire. Shout out to Athletic Brewing, the best damn non-alcoholic beer out there. Not a paid plug. I want to be clear about that. But I am a brand ambassador. I want to be clear about that. And I want to celebrate this amazing product. If you head over to... I almost said brendanomero.com. Hey, athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout. You got a nice little discount on your first order. I don't get any money and they're not an official sponsor of the podcast. I just get points towards like t-shirts and beer. And I have enough points to get myself a case of beer. I just have to pay for shipping. Uh, It's just from other perks of being an ambassador. Not a single person has purchased anything with my referral links and my discount. I would love to see that change because I think it's a it's a great option for you to have in your refrigerator. Here's a really nice chat with a writer I've come to really admire. Riff. It's just uh, I, I really enjoyed you know getting uh, acquainted with your work. Uh, yeah, that um, that other piece that you read, uh, Captain America. I was supposed to do a reading uh, for AWP in 2019 in Portland, and it had to be a particular size or whatever, and uh, it went really well. And I submitted it to River Teeth after um, when the creative nonfiction people signed river teeth on as a i don't know supplier of work to them they said well you know what do you got and they sent them my piece first and that's how the people at short reads found me was i guess they've moved from the creative nonfiction, whatever email that was to uh short reads so they reached out and they're like oh do you have anything and i had this piece that i had written <laughs> i tried I try to get in Taco Bell quarterly. Are you familiar? <laughs> no. Okay. So there's this guy, I think his name is M.M. Kerrigan, and he made this magazine called Taco Bell Quarterly. It is not associated with Taco Bell. It does not come out <laughs> quarterly. Um, and all of the stories have to be associated with Taco Bell, which is, I tend to write more serious, to me, serious things. And I was like, oh, I got to try to get it. They're, they're calling for more work. I'll try to write some piece. So I, I happened to be in Fruta waiting for my kid to get out of school. And I busted out that piece and they didn't, they didn't accept it at Taco Bell quarterly. And so I, uh, I think I worked it maybe for a magazine called complete sentence, but I think it was originally always one sentence. And then, uh, yeah, I sent it off as, uh, as soon as they reached out and asked for work at short reads. When I was talking with Hattie and Steven for an episode of the show uh, a few weeks ago, uh, you know, we were just talking about Flash essay as a as a form and everything, you know, and Hattie was, you know, bringing up various things, you know, like sometimes there might be, you know, what maybe an essay can be one sentence. I'm like, all right, that, that's curious. I haven't seen that yet. And I think this one must have been in the chamber. Uh, and, and so it's a it's one of those one of those things where it could be. It's like Birdman in a way, you know, the 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 way Birdman was filmed, that that one or that one take thing. It's like, OK, that's 
part of its style, its essence, and what you end up talking about. And so it can be a dangerous tool to deploy if it's not done well. So when you were approaching something like a one a long one sentence essay that can call attention to itself, you know, what were some of the the dangers that you were reckoning with as you were looking to use that as a stylistic uh, choice for this essay? Oh, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't say that I made that choice. Um, <laughs> like intentionally before I set out, I wrote this piece called Kong uh, a couple of years ago, and it came out in the sun and I got invited to go do this writing meeting with some people online. This was heavier COVID times. And I just remember they were so excited to ask me like, well, what was your intention with this piece? I don't, I mean, if you want to call it intention, I had two, one was to sit down and write, you know, as opposed to do anything else. And then the other was I needed to somehow write about Taco Bell and that's it. Uh, you know, my whole goal is to tell the truth, I guess. So that's an intention. If I'm going to write, then I want to tell the truth. I didn't set up to write one sentence. I do often write very long sentences. Uh, I don't know if they work or not from a technical or grammatical standpoint, but I guess Mm -hmm. like any art, if the reader deems that it's working, then whether or not it meets a strictly technical definition of work is irrelevant to me. Yeah, because as I was reading it and it became apparent to me that it was going to be, you know, a one-er, I was like, all right, it's like my attention has been called to it. So it's just like, okay, let's see how how it unfolds from here because that can be, you know, sometimes when you call too much attention to the, the style of the, or the vehicle of the thing, maybe the message can get lost, uh, which wasn't the case for me. I just I found it a, a, a riveting essay that just had this unique one or component. Uh, so I, I guess maybe as you were rewriting it, you know, what, what was your – what were the gears churning like in your head as you're rewriting it? You're like, okay, this this is going to be a, a one-sentence thing. And, uh, you know, I kind of like the sound of this right now. I don't even think about it in those terms. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's not – yeah, I don't think about that this uh, – I had another essay that River Teeth published, and a very good friend of mine and mentor, he read it, and he said, I've been sitting here retyping a 502-word sentence that you wrote and I don't know how you did it. I don't remember doing it. I didn't know that it was that long. So my editing process, so the writing process is to try to get to the place that hurts. And then once I'm there, it's just like this fury of trying to witness it. Like, I don't know that the words are right. I don't know what the right words are. I just know that I'm in the pocket. So I just need to write as much as possible um, before the pocket passes. And so on the revision, my goal is to clean it up to the degree that it makes sense. I am never engaged with the novelty of the vehicle. I'm more listening to the tune, like the syllabic measure, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and how clean and easy to understand the material is. Like. I don't want to confuse anybody. I want it to be, I want to just be clean uh, and compressed. I'm ba- probably out of all of those, I'm the worst at compression. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I love that that uh, that image of, of being in the pocket, and uh, you know, I often just being just the uh, you know thick of skull that I often 
I often uh, I I lean on sport metaphor a lot, and uh, so like I, I love the term in the pocket. I use that term for interviewing people, something even writing it, just being in a you know a uh, you know the 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 quarterback pocket, and it's all around you, and it's surrounding you, and then you you do have this moment where if you hold on to the ball too long, that shit's gonna collapse, and you got to get rid of the ball, or you got to be really prepared. That way you can you can see the field better, read the defense better read your opponent better not that an interview is adversarial or uh, one versus the other but it's when a person goes one way you're you know like oh i can i can see where we can take this so i i love that image of the, of the pocket and being in it and uh you know not 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 wanting to vanquish the opportunity of being in that nice spot oh yeah from an artistic standpoint um for me it's been a lot of years to realize how to get to the place and how to stay in the place as long as possible because uh, the feedback, well, there's two, twofold. The feedback that I get from myself is that I am the most satisfied with my writing when I can tell the truth from that place. It feels like real beauty, like the kind that is all of the emotions all at once. It's really good. I'm sure that you've been there before where you were writing and all of a sudden you just like fell into this river and it was like everything that's coming out of you right now is only good. Sometimes, uh, not that you think of yourself in highfalutin terms, but sometimes you're going along and sometimes you give yourself goosebumps where you're like, it just, you're so in it and it feels so visceral. You're like, oh, wow, that's it. It, it elicited something in me that was uh, hormonal <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Um, like I remember S- Stephen King talking about, I mean, it was in a book where he was writing about himself, <laughs> which is amazing as a fictional character, but how the story <laughs> seemed to come from his belly button. I think as John Gardner writes about it, like this white hot heat. Uh, a lot of people, I think it's in Wonder Boys, the Katie Holmes character talks about how, the Michael Douglas character, like all the words were just up in fiction heaven waiting for him to pick them and put them in exactly the right order. It feels like you you have some sort of antenna and you're on shortwave and you're just like writing is just dialing and you hope to get like, you know, pick up Mongolian throat singing from Ulaanbaatar and you're just praying that it comes, that something that genuinely beautiful comes in. And when it's in, you just like, your whole goal is to n- not fuck it up. It's like <laughs> you don't know how long you're going to be there. And just to, and to hear it while it's not to try to think about where it's going to go afterward or what you could do with it or anything, but just, just, to, just to hear it, to be witness of it. Have you found any way in your in your practice, in your writing practice, the way you show up, how frequently you show up, that you can increase the the frequency by which you may be able to tap into those heavenly words out there in the ether? I revisit events a lot, but I honestly think that revisiting those events a lot, those events are traumatic and there is trauma there, but I think it's an easy place to begin to understand beauty because there's so much trauma and the trauma feels so much. There's so much that comes with it. It's like, I bought it, you know, I didn't buy a coffee today, but I bought a coffee today has little to no feels to it. Right. But like my brother got run over by a car when I was 15 years old has an ocean liner of feels. Mm -hmm. So it's first learning how to 
learning how to feel, I guess. I don't want to sound pretentious. I don't know what I'm doing, man. <laughs> None of us do, Nick. I sit down. <laughs> I sit down and I try really hard to break my own heart every time I write. Um, I don't know why. It's like somehow if I write it all down, then it'll go away. But that's not true either because it doesn't go away. All I know how to do is like do what works for me, which is sit down and try to write something that actually like matters to me to tell the truth, not stylize it or not make it like obviously all nonfiction. I'm not going to say that most nonfiction is just fiction anyway, because it's my version of the story and everybody is a completely different witness to both their story and anyone else's. So I'm writing a form of fiction as witnessed by myself. Mm. and felt by myself so (laughs) i guess if i've learned anything over the last like decade or so of writing it is that the more that i do it doesn't mean that i'm getting better at it and by do it i mean writing but also it's like playing the instrument the more that I practice, not every day of practicing produces quality material, but the more that I practice, the more prepared I am to play the song when it comes. Right. It's like, I, I remember taking um, guitar lessons very, very briefly before I gave it up because uh, I, I don't have any grit. and it. But I remembered... Uh, after one session, be it playing by myself or after just plinking along with uh, the the teacher, that day's lesson was total garbage. Like, it was so bad. But the next day when I started, it was like in my sleep that muscle memory was doing its thing and my neurons were starting to thread together. And so that next day, it was like it was a little bit better. And... I think that's true with writing, too, because sometimes when we're in that, be it if we're in the pocket or somewhere outside getting crushed, it's we weather that the the buzzing of the fretboard and the, the out of tune stringing. But maybe but by the time we get to the next one, those neural networks are th- have fired and we're a little bit better the next day. And it's kind of it's kind of my long winded way of just echoing exactly what you said. Yeah, it's also um i find it's like learning to appreciate being a witness i feel like if you you can practice writing all all day long but if you don't if you can't see anything if you can't feel how the world looks in a way that is unique to you it's unique to everyone everyone looks at something completely differently so in your real life if you if you're not practicing trying to feel all the feels and not that it, you know Everybody does a bad. God, I don't want to sound pretentious. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think there's an element of what what you're saying, which is um, you've you've developed a way to run towards the the pain where a lot of writers sometimes don't because uh, they're afraid to. And, and you know, how have you learned or cultivated a, a sense of like, well, that's where. That's where I need to go. That place of hurt where, that you that you mentioned a moment ago. It's uh, not a lot of people can get there, and I wonder how you've not that you're comfortable with it because I don't think anyone gets comfortable with it. But you found a way to run towards it and uh, and and really convey it well, at least from what I've read. Yeah, so that's <clears throat> two parts, right? The running towards it is a thing, 
And then the second part is the practice at the instrument. Um, and if you practice long enough, you can play your instrument well, um, which helps better serve the first thing. Not saying I've practiced long enough or that I do the first thing well. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that it just feels like telling the truth is important. And it, maybe it's because I think it's so hard to tell the truth in real life or you don't always know the truth. You don't have time to develop the truth because when you're communicating with someone else, there's like you and the other person and that's two people. And then there's the third person that you make, which is the person between you. It's like the idea of the conversation or the relationship or the interaction. And it's separate of the both of you. And it doesn't genuinely most of the time achieve what either individual wants because it has its own agenda, but the paper has no agenda. The paper is not going to shame you for writing what really happened to you or what you did. The paper will never interrupt you or tell you to stop. The paper will accept every horrible thing that you've ever done will always be there for you. I used to, <laughs> I used to joke with this friend of mine who I have to go to his funeral this week, which is going to be something. Um, but we had a joke between he and I and another friend about how alcohol always, or alcohol never says no. You know, like it, everybody in your life will tell you no, but alcohol never says no, um, which is the truth and also extremely terrible. But the paper, the paper is like that. If I try to have a conversation about some of the things that I write about in real life, my voice will continue to increase and register until it's so tight in my throat that I can't talk anymore. Um, and I have things that I want to say. Uh, but I can't say, and there's usually another person and then the other person has things they interject with or whatever. And so, but like the paper, I can, my throat can fail to work and I can continue with my fingers and my mind and I can explore a space that cannot be explored um, through normal human communication. And so maybe for me, part of what you're talking about and the reason I've gotten good at it is because I have things that I need to say, not that my things are any more or less important than anyone else's. My experience is, you know, equal as everyone else's. But as I'm trying to say those things, it doesn't really work well um, in real life. So I found an alternative reality where I can say whatever uh, I feel I need. So how did you develop the, the, let's say the, the compulsion to want to share it and write it? Uh, that's a uniquely different <laughs> thing for, for writers, right? It's, uh, and, uh, you know, you could just tell, tell, tell a therapist or keep it to ourselves. Uh, but some of us turn to, to writing, writing essays to metabolize it. And, uh, maybe for you, well, you know, how did you develop that as I said a moment ago, the compulsion to do it? Early on, like just post high school, I kind of fell into uh, like deep reading, kind of going from, I used to read a lot of pulp fiction novels from like the 30s, like Doc Savage in the Shadow and stuff like that. And then I moved into kind of heavier stuff and 
I realized there was a difference, but I didn't understand the difference. And it took, you know, 10 years or so. And then I, I, of reading off and on, and I started falling into, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning or Pulitzer Prize winning books and Nobel Prize winning authors and short stories. And it was, I think it was really when I got into Raven, Raymond Carver, I thought, these stories make me feel less alone in the world. I've always, not always, but as I have grown, I have developed more a sense of aloneness, um, even amongst others. And I particularly really great short stories made me feel less alone. And, and um, I think the very beginning attempts to write came from a position of wanting to put that energy back into the well that I was taking out of. Like if I could make one person feel less alone for five minutes, then I know what that's like and it's worth everything. And that mentor I was talking about earlier, he, um, he said, I have this gift where I will tell the paper absolutely anything. And then I will be able to go back and edit it and not recognize what I told the paper. And then I will go out and submit it to the world and forget what I told the paper. There's a complete disconnect from what I told the paper to when it gets published somewhere. <laughs> and then mm. it gets published somewhere and then people will reach out and they'll say, oh, that was really great. Or, oh, this or that. Like I've lost friends over things that have been in things that I've published. And I, and I'll forget, I'll have forgotten what I said. Um, so it's a, it's not ideal, uh, or it can be not ideal, uh, when it involves other people. Uh, what are some of the, the things that you return to and read and reread for that sense of, uh, Un unloneliness to feel less alone and maybe even the things that turn the world from like black and white into color for you that made you want to contribute to the well oh man hold on well in the um in the terms of like nonfiction, have you ever read uh poe ballantine's essays poe Ballantine? i have not oh man there's a book called 501 Minutes to Christ, and there's another one called Things I Like About America. Uh, I highly recommend that you you wrap your eyes on those. They are so um, beautifully heartbreaking. God, they're, they're unbelievably good. He's kind of a wanderer, and he just takes, like, the bus all around America, and he lives these this really, like, or he used to. He doesn't anymore. But man, he just has so much to say about uh, being alone and, and these great, oh man, they're such good stories. There's one about meth that breaks my heart every time. It's really good. Uh, sorry, I was able to find my list here. Um, just stories and like short stories, um, not whole collections, but uh, short stories. I think my favorite is uh, Fireworks by... Uh, is that Richard Ford? Oh, Cause the end of that story is unbelievable. And I really like, like if you've ever read uh prophet of Jupiter by Tony early, that's, that's so good. Um, okay, I just read one the other day, uh, a history of everything, including you by Jenny Hollowell. 
it's so short and it fits everything in it uh which i think is brilliant um, yeah i, I love tight is- economical pa- yeah, writing passages short novels short short stories that just uh, it's a a heavy fastball and i i, I love that kind of stuff yeah, I wish I could get that same kind of um, hit from poetry. Uh, there's one out there called, I think it's called Reverse Suicide. can't remember the guy's last name. Maybe it's Rasmussen. I can't remember it right now. But that one, got to go back to that one like once or twice a year. It's just so, it's so good. But uh, I'm always looking... Oh, yeah. I'm always looking for like, and I only read probably one or two stories a year that are, that are that good. Um, there's one in the New Yorker by Lauren Groff, I think last year. Can't remember the name of that one. Uh, oh, uh, Annunciation. Uh, and then Stay Down and Take It by Ben Marcus was in the New Yorker, I think in 2018 or 2019. That story, I, I am a sucker for a love story. And that one is <laughs> all the love. What could you point to as a as as you were getting your writing career kind of go going? Yeah, um, we all need early wins, early victories that put a little fuel in our tank to make us uh, to feed the delusion to keep going. And uh, what could you point to as a, an early win for you that set you on this course? <laughs> I don't have a I don't have a writing career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. Um... Yeah, I get maybe a few things published. Yeah, I wouldn't even see every year. I only write some years I get five essays out, some years I get one. Little things like this I can turn out really quickly, but it's whether or not they're good enough to publish. So I wouldn't necessarily say that I have a writing career. Why do I keep trying? Is Yeah. Yeah, why do you keep trying? <laughs> um Because I believe I can do it. Yep. Yeah. And not every time, and not that everything will be good, but I believe I can do it. Yeah, the the only person now that I write to, like, impress is that one mentor guy. Like... These stories go out in the world and you hear so many rejections. I have an incredible spreadsheet that I keep all my metrics in. And I think I'm like 667 submissions in, I don't know, less than 10 years. <laughs> my acceptance rate's like three and a half percent, which is very, very small. And probably normal. And- like people need to know that kind of batting average. Because uh, <laughs> I think anywhere. If you're in that ballpark, I would say that's probably normal. Not that I keep a hundred percent, and I'm more in sometimes more in the journalism kind of world where it's probably more like ten percent if you're good. Um, I'm way under ten percent. My, you know, I'm in the minor leagues, but it's one of those things where, yeah, it's like talking about those percentages to get to your point about making people feel less alone. People need to know that the rejection rate is cataclysmically high, and it's okay, and it's normal. Yeah, um, when magazines are like, uh, hey, man, you should be really excited you got in because we have less than a 1% acceptance rate. Yeah. You're like, you're like, yeah, that's that's incredible. But yeah, you get that beat down enough, it's like, uh, it starts to become funny. 
Like I got a rejection letter <laughs> once that uh, the guy was like, hey, we're not going to take this. So normally I have them in my mind. I have them tiered out. Tier one is form rejection, like no flavor. Tier two is a form rejection with encouragement where they say, hey, yeah, you know, we're not going to take it, but please send us more work. And tier three is like, there's a, a note for you. Hey, we really liked this character and this scene or whatever. And, uh, and I got, I don't know, tier zero where this guy said, hey, we're not going to accept this essay. And also, as long as I am editor of this magazine, we will not accept any essays from this collection. <laughs> and I was like, that is brutal. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> um, but it starts to become funny. And then you realize that no one cares. No one cares about what you do. You sit down at the computer and you bang your heart out and you try to tell the truth and no one really cares. But if I send that essay to a guy in Lincoln City, Oregon, he will send back a response and he will tell me that I did it again or that I'm beautiful for a minute. And that really matters to me. And so it's weird when it goes out into the world and like, like I don't know, I had some piece I have a project. I don't know if I want to mention it, but a piece of it got, I don't know, went on Facebook and then there was like 5,000 people that read it or more and everybody said nice things and that was too much to bear Um, because I don't write it for all that. I kind of just wrote that one for me and then it was really great that the other guy, the mentor dude, read it. Beyond all that, it's like, I don't know why I keep doing this. I got asked that the other day. Does it make my life better? Uh, Does it make me feel better? And I think happiness is pretty fleeting. It doesn't make me happy. But it feels like satisfying. Like I can be okay for a little bit. Yeah, would you say that writing in, in, in a way and writing... Yeah, running towards the pain and run and writing through the hurt is something that is uh uh it's saves your life oh certainly yeah um you know i i don't know how many suicide letters you've written in your time but when and uh, you know that's a very serious subject i take it very seriously by the time I reach the end of the letter, I, I always realize how much gratitude I have that I'm, that I'm, that I get to do any of this at all. And that right. if I do, you know, if, if I can survive till tomorrow, then, um, it's one more day of bearing witness to something that is really difficult to like witness and fully take in. Like life is brutal and um and i have it you know comparatively easy there are many people that are worse off than i am for sure so yeah i have nothing but gratitude for being here and i forget sometimes and i think writing if you're doing it correctly even though i write a lot of at least my own personal dark shit I hope that I can find the beauty in it and remember that all of this is worth doing as long as I can possibly do it. 
Yeah, I'm just I'm just thinking when you're like, <laughs> you know, rhetorically, you're like, yeah, how many suicide notes have you written? I've I've just riffed I've riffed on that idea in my journals all the time, just from my own just bleak outlook on things. Uh, but it's uh, but it's like I always come back like to how how good I have it. It's it's just it's some faulty wiring. Uh, but I, I but uh, but for you, sometimes does it take writing a suicide note to make you realize uh, like, oh, it's maybe not not as bad as I had originally thought. It doesn't. No, it doesn't take that. I don't do those anymore. Kind of. Um, I write to the. Um, <laughs> uh, I write to the New Yorker. I write a letter to the editor every week. They never read them. You could say whatever you want. And some some days I write, you know, how bad it is here, um, feelings-wise, obviously. I mean, I feel bad. Because I know, you know, like you, so many other people have it so much worse, and you just feel like your pain matters. And then you're like, wow, people are in objectively far more pain than I am. <laughs> Seem to be doing better. So yeah, I don't write, I haven't written one of those in, in years and I've only written a handful. Yeah. I don't need as much effort these days to understand that every day here is a gift. And I try to remind myself of that a lot. Uh, but yeah, as I was uh, saying, that, I was just, uh, I imagine that maybe writing through a lot of the, the stuff that you write about it, it, um, it probably does have a cathartic effect on you. And you're like, yeah, it's, um, it it, it 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 evokes something in you but uh, but having that you know having it evoke something in a reader is like oh okay you know the writing i'm doing is is of service and you know and that feels good too yeah that story i don't remember when i shifted i i wrote a lot about my divorce about this trips that i had with my children a bunch of essays about that when they were real little and we went from fruta to alaska and the people that read that, they seemed to enjoy it. But, you know, was, I think it was, it changed really with that other story that you read, the Captain America one, um, when I first started writing about my dad. And I wrote another essay, like I said, Kong, and that went into The Sun, and that got a lot of readership. The day that they posted that online, I think I got 22 emails um, from random people. And the overwhelming response was, you gave me my father back. So whether their father was dead or in many of the cases, they had just stopped talking to their father. Um, that story made them pick up the phone and they got their dad back. And that to me is like, even if it was just one person that never emailed me, you know, like I, I can't get my dad back. But maybe if yeah. it was just one person out there that got their dad back and they never had to tell me about it, that would have been enough uh, for such uh, to have such an impact is, uh, you know, there's a sense of like, like, I don't want to know, you know, don't say thank you to me. Like you did it. You, you picked up the phone. I always believe anyway that writing and reading that is, uh, when you're reading somebody's work, it's a 50% or more contribution. My job as a writer is to take, a nebulous idea. There are no words to it, a feeling. And the feeling I shoot for 
I hope is beauty or, you know, whatever the collective unconscious can be defined as and to package that down into, in the case of what you're talking to me about, a single sentence and then hope that the person on the other end using the bare minimum, right? 26 characters, just a handful of punctuation, you know, black on white, if that's what colors you read it in, and that they can unpack a gateway into all of us all at once. So, so much of it is like on the reader's part. So I'm like, don't thank me, man. You did it on your own. Like You transcended the plane. It's the most amazing uh, art form to me. And so, yeah, I was really happy when anybody reaches out. Some lady just emailed last week. She read a story about my brother. And uh, yeah, they tell you that it's beautiful. And it's like, you know, I'm sure some part of me wants to be beautiful or see myself as beautiful. I know that I don't most of the time. So it's nice when people think that the things that I do are. Yeah, and to to take that that pain and that trauma and to make art from it that moves someone to a reach out to you or even better that they pick up the phone and reach out to someone that you no longer can reach out to it's um it's got a i mean it's 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 kind of bittersweet because you know you, you can't pick up that phone in that instance for either your brother or your father but you've 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 lit that flame for someone else to do something. Maybe they've gone years without talking to someone that like they realize they can't get that time back, but at least they might have tomorrow. And so you've kind of, I don't know, you kick that door open for them, but they had to walk through. Yeah, but that's awesome. You know, cause I think uh, as far as I know, everyone's going to die unless, you know, Christianity and Elijah, I think he went to heaven on a chariot while he was still alive, but I might be wrong there, but <laughs> nope. I just read this quote the other day because we were talking, we've been talking a lot about my friend, all of our friends, um, something along the lines of um, death, death is often by error and it is also inevitable for anybody to reach out to anybody else for any reason and say, Hey, I really appreciate that you're here or whatever. That's far more like I'm never, I don't think you get over the death of people in the, that are really close to you that you love that are your family or whomever, you know, maybe that, I always think about this. Um, my aunt, for one reason or another, decided she was going to walk into traffic on the I-5 and uh, somebody hit her and she didn't die. And I tend to mm-hmm. think about that person who was in the car. You know, they got they were going from A to B, doing something completely different, and they were unwittingly pulled into a different plot line for a minute. And so the interaction could be that quick that you know you have this event that you're not going to get over um it's just something that you carry with you uh like a scar or you know a tumor or something like that that doesn't go away it's just what you have now but uh, yeah being able to affect the shape of someone's scar someone who if you can still try to repair that relationship um i had a friend who talked about fiction was all about connection and disconnection that's it that is the entirety of all storytelling is connection and disconnection um and you know there's probably other things that it's about but 
I think so much of real life is about connection and disconnection. And if anything anyone could do to reduce disconnection seems like as long as nobody's hurt, you know, it's a good thing. Yeah, and we're there. We live in such uh, lonely and isolated times now. Uh, I think of the incredible graphic memoir, if you want to call it that, uh, on loneliness that Kristen Radke uh, wrote a couple years ago, and um, it's just so moving and touching. And then, but then you like some people if they seek that that connection in like online chat rooms that just devolve into neo-nazism it's like well that's connection but that's that's not good <laughs> it's, it's like <laughs> it's like we need we need connection but you know, not all connection is created equal yeah and it's funny because you sense such a desperation for connection that settling yeah. for settling for that is more acceptable because you'll take anything you know there's a craving seeming i don't know i can't speak for authority on humanity but it does seem like people are really short of connection yet we have more ways to connect to each other than we've ever had i wish people read more <laughs> i mean yeah no shit it feels yeah. like it feels like i'm participating in an art form that's dying and i can't speak for my work but i can look to other work that i've read in my art form and say like here are the fucking answers like it's all here. You don't need to go look somewhere else. Like it's here. And it just seems like people don't have the time uh, or want to make the time or want to have feelings that are not like the feelings they already had. Like they, they're looking for validation, not for more complexity. I, at least in the limited sample size of what I read from you, it's, it's, I think there's a great um, emotional reflection going on, like in reading it, like I can, I could feel a certain energy, uh, a certain pulse that, you know, resonate with me as a reader. And I, and the more you put that kind of work out there, the more opportunity it has to hit someone who might share it with someone or just randomly hit someone who needs to see it. And it might turn a switch on, it might get them engaged in a different way they might find connection in a different way. And it's a, uh, you can't control that once it's out of your hands, but you know, I, 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 in reading, in reading your work, it's like, I think, you know, your, your gift and your, your talent and what you've been able to put out is it, uh, they are, they're, uh, bridges for the taking. If, uh, if I can go so far as to say that. I mean, one can hope, it's really messy on this end and I try to yeah. clean it up. But then when I send it out into the world, uh, it can become far more messy because um, people bring their own mess. Oh, yeah. The hope is that, you know, o the overwhelming response is positivity. There's always going to be somebody that's upset and that's got to be okay. I'm sensitive to that, but like also you can't think about that when you're writing anything because you wouldn't write anything. My hope is that there are more people than 22 that got their dad again, you know. Or oh, yeah. No, I, 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 I would certainly say anything. That. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's, um, you know, and just in terms of and reading what I've read, and uh, it's, it's got such a strong voice component to it. And I, I almost was like, 
it, it sounds like you you avoided the the MFA trap, and then I noticed that you did earn an MFA from uh, 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 from from uh, Anchorage, Alaska, and uh, I you know, and I say MFA trap, I earned one myself. Uh, I I think it I I met great people. Uh, but I think it um, it did something to my written voice that it took me several years to break, um, and I, I wonder <laughs> for you, 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 uh, you, it looks like you managed your the, your voice seems to have come out of it strong. Did did you wrestle with a a certain uh, MFA uniformity that uh, that you were able to break through? I think realizing why you're there, um, I got really lucky. Uh, one, the program that I got into was magical. They weren't trying to produce uniformity. I don't think any of them are, but this one really, it, it allowed, it, it made a space for me in my existing voice, which was less refined, but I, I think it was still there. But the other thing was before I attended the program, I just completed my bachelor's in weirdly business and um there was a woman there shout out carol lund she's amazing and she said you need to not write about business anymore you cannot anthropomorphize stocks you can't make narratives up for quantitative research like this you're you're doing something that is great it's just not here where it belongs She's recommended that I go to the MFA program. And I said, I don't want them to tell me how to write. And she told me about her brother, who was a painter. And he was a gifted painter. He painted his whole life. And she kept trying to get him to go get educated in painting. And he kept refusing because he didn't want them to change. And he had this revelation when he got there that your goal when you do that isn't to learn how to write. It's to learn how writing works and then pick the tools that help you get your vision where you want it to go. It's not there to teach you how to write like everyone else. You can hear everything they have to say. Your job is to pick your instructors and pick the tools and pick the things that you can learn from there that help your vision get closer to where you think it needs to go or where it wants to go as its own thing, which I think listening to the story is the most valuable thing you can do. Get you out of it and just start listening to the story. And so I actually, the first year I got coupled up with this dude and he was the best uh and he threw me all of this really good fiction i'd never heard of and he never said no man i could send him the wildest shit and um and crazy shit and i sent him three times the amount of work i was supposed to produce in a year and uh it was great it was a huge time of experimentation and through that i think um, i learned that my voice as it was mattered I just needed to stop doing some other things from a craft perspective to get out of my own way. Well, Nick, as uh, we're kind of coming up on our hour, and I like to, you know, ask a recommendation of some kind for for guests uh, as we bring this airliner down for a landing. So, uh, you know, as we come up on our time here, I wonder what you might recommend for people out there. That's uh, something that's bringing you some excitement and joy that you want to share. Yeah, I think back to that those Poe Ballantine references. Like, I can't emphasize enough. In the nonfiction essay world, I don't think there's much like him. Um, 501 Minutes to Christ and Things I Like About America. Um, every aspect of those books are amazing. They're even printed really tall and narrow. 
And like he says at the beginning of 501 minutes to Christ, which is a number, it's not spelled out, that he put a number on it because he didn't know where librarians would file it. Like the whole thing just says, get the fuck away from me. Like I'm doing something different here, which makes me love it even more. Um, and then if you haven't read Festival Days by Joanne Beard, um, get it in your house. It's it's the best collection of essays that I, if you want to call them that or whatever. I mean, she has this. Have you read that yet? I have not. Uh, it's got this like beginning essay that talks about fiction and nonfiction and what the difference is between the two. And that book is absolutely magical. Yeah. There's an essay written in first person perspective from a woman who utilized Jack Kevorkian's services. How do you do that? Like, Jeez. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's incredible because that woman's not here to do that anymore, to write that thing, but she worked with her family and she got permission and she wrote this thing and it really challenges what we think of as nonfiction or nonfiction essays. Um, yeah, Festival Days by Joanne Beard. Fantastic. Well, well, man, th- thank you so much for you know hopping on the show here and talking a little shop and doing so on such short notice as well. So just uh, you know, thanks for the work you've been putting out there, Nick. And uh, you know, thanks for coming on the show. This was great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for reaching out and um, you know talking to me and whatnot. I appreciate it a lot. Nick came on the show very short notice pretty much bailed me out this week so we had a new episode so thanks for that it's getting harder and harder for me to put these new shows out every week and i might have to start running encore episodes from the backlog thanks to a chat i had with a buddy today he suggested that as i get increasingly overwhelmed by the book that it might be best to step away from the grind of new interviews and uh, refresh the backlog with new introductions it's full of great evergreen interviews but who's scrolling all the way back? You know, it's just, it's so much. And no matter what you say, they feel old. How often do you go to the backlog, the podcast backlog? It might be like 2018 or 17. It doesn't have to be like, oh my God, it was like five, six years ago. That's, that's old. The audio might be really crappy. So anyway... Ones that are really good, I, I'll, I'll, I'll start drumming up my favorite ones. And, you know, that way you can be like, oh, wow, I didn't realize Laura Hillenbrand was back there or Mary Carr. That happened. That was a long time ago. Oh, you mean David Grant was on more than just this last time? He was on episode 99, not just episode three, whatever. I originally had something of a longer parting shot. Uh, I deleted it. It was bleak, even by my standards. So I'm just going to go. I'm not going to drag you down anymore. Best of luck with what you're doing, and we'll uh, catch you next week. Sound like a plan? All right. Well, if you can't do, interview. See ya.